So we're working our way through the book of Ezekiel, and we're up to the second half of chapter 18, and chapter 18 is a fantastic chapter. So I've titled this Ezekiel 18, verses 19 through 32, Repent and turn from all your wrongdoing, so that guilt and punishment will not be your ruin. And this is part two. So each week we do our memory verse, which is Ezekiel 36, verses 26 to 27. So we say this out loud together. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Fantastic. So last week in verses 1 through 18, what did we see? What did we learn? Well, the individual responsibility for each person to decide for themselves whether they're going to follow God or not follow God, whether they're going to love God and obey God or reject God and live for themselves. We cannot blame our environment, our parents, or any other factor. Our salvation is our own choice. And God gave the threefold example. There was the righteous father who had a son who chose to live an evil life, a wicked life, and then the son or the grandson of that wicked father who looked at the example of his wicked father and said, you know what, I don't want to live like him. I'm going to live a godly life. So it's completely up to us. It doesn't matter about our circumstances. It's up to us how we choose to live, whether we follow God or not follow him. Now we come to the second half of the chapter, so we'll just start reading it. It's verses 19 through 32. And let's pray first. Lord, help us to understand. Lord, may your spirit teach us through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them. He shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Remember last week talking about this? It's talking about eternal life and eternal death. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him. Because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? Well, no. All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty, and the sin which he has committed, because of them he shall die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel. Is it not my way which is fair, and your ways which are not fair? When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies in it, it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he has committed, and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive, because he considers 
and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed, he shall surely live. Remember the turn there means repent. He shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, is it not my ways which are fair, and your ways which are not fair? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed, and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Interesting stuff in this chapter. We'll get to it as we go. So, the first part is verses 19 and 20. And I've titled this, Even in a collective or unashamed society, each person is still individually accountable. So I'll just read those two verses. Yet you say, okay, this is God speaking, yet you say, the children of Israel say, the question the children of Israel had is, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? And God's answer, because the son has done what is lawful and right, and has kept all my statutes and observed them, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So, as you can see, you're responsible for your own choices. But we need to think about this question, the question the Israelites are asking, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? On a shame culture, Middle Eastern culture, Asian culture, most of the world except for the Western world, They have this honor-shame culture, and that's exactly how they think. The son should bear the guilt of the father. That's how it works in their families, in their culture. So, in the eyes of the Jews, father and son were linked, and therefore, why shouldn't the son bear the guilt of the father? So, there's three main or common types of cultures in the world, and the first one is the guilt or innocence, or Western culture, and that's based on an individual making decisions based on how they affect themselves. And the honor-shame or collectivistic culture, and this is common in the rest of the world, including Israel, and guess what? The church. We'll get into that in a minute. Asia, the Middle East. And an individual makes decisions based primarily upon how they affect the group or the family. And then you've got the last one, which you won't go into today, which is your fear-based culture. And it's animism, which is your tribal groups. Now, I'm going to give an example to help you see the difference between uh, guilt, innocence, Western culture, individual-based culture, and uh, honor, shame, collectivistic culture. So imagine I want to choose a career. Now, what do we do in school today? We ask the student, what do you want to do? What are your dreams? What are your desires? What are your skills? And the career counselor helps the student find what's best for you. You know, what do you want to do? It's all focused around that individual. Do they ever ask what your parents want to do? What do your parents want you to do? It's not a question that's even asked, is it, really? Some parents would like to have an input and say, oh, I think you should be this, but most of the time it's the kid, the child, choosing what they want. 
Now, in an honor-shame culture, my choice of career would be based on what would bring the most honor and benefit to the rest of my family. If my family ran a dry cleaning business, for example, and it was considered honorable in my culture to continue the family business, then I would have a career as a dry cleaner. Regardless of if I liked it or not, Why? Because to me, the most important consequence of my choice is not for my own benefit or what I would like to do, but rather how it affects the honour or social status of my family. See, in honour-shame culture, it's not about me, but rather how does my decision affect the group? So for me to choose not to be a dry cleaner would bring shame on my family. They would lose honour and dignity and status within the community. I would cause other families to look down on my family. Well, your son's not very loyal to you, is he? You know, So that's kind of the shame you bring on to your family if you didn't do what they expected of you in that culture. So Israel, being a Middle Eastern country, was an honor-shame or collectivistic culture, meaning that what one person did had a real effect on the group. So think about their mindset. Our fathers sinned against God and so brought shame on the nation. Because of that, now we are suffering. Can you see how this honor, shame, collectivistic mindset would cause them to think that the sins of our fathers are causing us to suffer and we can't do anything about it? It's not our fault. That's their logical honor, shame thinking. But it's not how it works when it comes to our relationship with God. The sins of the father do not affect the status of the son when it comes to his relationship with God. And so God answers the question. So come back to verse 19. Why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? So he's trying to help them to understand personal or individual responsibility. A few quotes here to help bring this out. God's question sounds a bit crazy to our modern individualistic ears. It is often hard for us to relate to cultures where there is a much stronger sense of family and community solidarity, where what one does does affect the entire clan or community. As David Guzik, Vorter and Hopp say, we have to reflect that, however reasonable it may appear to us, habituated as we are to the sense of personal responsibility in our Western culture. It, or personal responsibility, was a revolutionary idea to present to Ezekiel's contemporaries, like the people living at that time in that culture. They were more at home with the idea of collective righteousness and blame. Another one from Taylor. Communal solidarity and corporate responsibility were facts to which experience bore witness. Ezekiel's aim is to show that they are not the only facts. God's redeemed community is a nation of righteous or repentant individuals. So it's not one or the other, it's both. And we're going to see that that should be true in the church as well. Getting ahead of myself there. So that quote from Taylor sums it up really nicely. While it's true that the sin of one person or group or generation did bring shame or a loss of honor on both the nation and God, that did not affect the people's individual relationship with God. So God's redeemed community is a nation of righteous or repentant individuals. Now, I'm going to show you an example of how a choice 
has an effect on both the individual and the group. And the example is David committing adultery with Bathsheba. It affected his relation with God and also brought shame on God and the nation. So we'll read Second Samuel twelve thirteen to 14 So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. So this is talking about David's individual relationship with God. He has been restored. He's back in fellowship with God. However, there's this other aspect. Verse 14. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion of the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Shame. This is talking about the collective or honor-shame consequence that affected both God and the nation. And it continues, The child who was born to you shall surely die. Now, let's come to the church. The church is based on an honor-shame culture. I know it's hard to understand. We live in a Western culture. But think what the Bible says. Like Israel, the church is an honor-shame collectivistic culture. And when we don't understand this, we don't try and put this into practice, we're actually hurting the body of Christ when we live individual lives in the church. Yeah, We do things just how it affects me and not think about how it affects other people. So for example, 1 Corinthians 12, 24-26, But God composed the body, having given greater honour to that part which lacks it. So notice the word honour that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honoured, all the members rejoice with it. So this is why the command to esteem others as better than yourselves is really important. Philippians 2, 2-4 two Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in loneliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So how do we think that we're going to increase our honour in a Western society? We make ourselves look good at the expense of other people, right? That's what we tend to do. That's Western culture. I want to be better than everybody else. How does it work in an honor-shame, collectivistic culture? Well, I honor somebody else in the group. That brings honor to the group. It lifts the whole group up, including me. It's a different way of thinking, isn't it? So if I want to lift myself up, I give honor to someone else. And the whole group is honored, and I'm part of that honor. So... Indirectly, when I honour someone else, and as it says in Philippians, looking out not for my own interests but also for the interests of others, I'm actually giving them honour, honouring them, lifting them up, and the whole group is benefited, and I'm a part of the group, so I'm benefited too. But if I go the opposite, and I'm looking to do what is good only for me, and I through doing and achieving my own goals and ambitions, I put other people down, then what's happened to the group? Shame. Okay? And guess what? I'm a part of the group. I've actually brought myself down too. So the church is the body of Christ and we need to work together. 
And this is why these commands to love each other and esteem others as better than yourselves is so important. So what did Jesus say in John 13, 34-35? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Now, we're made up in the church of all kinds of people who wouldn't normally hang out with each other. True? Normally, people like the disciples, you know, fishermen, tax collectors and all those people, they wouldn't really typically be friends in a normal society. But in the church, we're all together. All different people put together. And it's actually a challenge to love all those different people because they're all so different. But that's where God comes into it. That's why this command is only able to be kept to love one another as I have loved you sacrificially if we have the Holy Spirit living in us and we are submitted to the Spirit and therefore we are bearing fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And then the world will know that there's a miracle going on in our hearts when all these different people can actually love one another because of what God is doing in their hearts. Now, we've been talking a lot last week and this week about individual righteousness and individual guilt. Like What I do affects me as far as my eternal destiny. However, in the scriptures, there is an example of collective guilt and collective righteousness. And you might know this as the first Adam and the second Adam. And I'm not going to read it now, but it's based on Romans 5, 12 to 21. There's a situation, a unique case in the scriptures where this does not apply. Adam's sin was collectivistic. It was passed on to everybody. Okay? And also, Christ's righteousness didn't just affect him. It was passed on to all who will believe. It's available to everyone. We just need to choose to receive it. So what Adam and Christ did didn't just affect themselves. It affected the whole human race. So what I do doesn't affect you and what you do doesn't affect me as far as an eternal destiny goes. It does as far as the body of Christ, but not as far as my eternal destiny. But what Adam and Jesus did have effect on everybody. Now, is this a good thing? You might say, well, it's not fair that you know I have to suffer because of Adam's sin. Well, that's true. It's not really fair. It's not really good that I'm born a sinner and separated from God because of what Adam did. But consider the other side of it. What Christ did in his living a perfect life can be mine as well. That can be passed on to me, you see. If it was a case where it was only an individual thing and it was just left to me and I choose to sin, then I would have no hope because I could not save myself and there would be no one to save me. However, as a part of God's plan, I have the choice to decide for myself which group or family I choose to belong to, the power of darkness or the kingdom of the Son of His love. Uh, Colossians 1.13 So by the Holy Spirit working in my heart, I have the opportunity to be blessed by what someone else, Jesus, did on my behalf. 
Jesus becomes my substitute instead of Adam. You see that? So, you know, if I'm playing basketball or something, I can substitute myself off the court and I can put, you know, a champion basketball player in my place and we can win the game. If I stay on, probably won't. And that's what it's like. I'm not a very good basketball player, but if I substitute and put a better player on, then we can win. And that's what is basically happening here. Jesus is my substitute. He's the one who lived the perfect life in my place. And that's passed on to me. It's transferred to me. A quote from David Guzik, The New Testament clearly teaches us that the guilt of Adam was passed on to the entire human race, and the righteousness of Jesus Christ is passed on to all who believe upon him. Romans 5, 12-19 These two men, absolutely unique in all humanity as representative heads of humanity, see their respective wickedness and righteousness upon others. So, just remember that although we do have this painful consequence of being born in sin, being born separated from God, born with a sinful nature, the flip side of it is that we can also benefit from Christ's perfect life. His righteousness can be passed on to us because we can't do it ourselves. So God has made a way for us to become righteous and perfect in his sight. Now, moving on to verse 19. Because the Son has done what is lawful and right. And this is God's answer to why should the Son not bear the guilt of the Father. It's the whole point of the first half of the chapter, verses 1 to 18. With regard to eternal life and eternal reward, God sees people as individuals before him, even though as a church he often blesses us collectively or communally because together we make up the body of Christ. So hopefully you can start to see that there's two things going on. We have the body of Christ where what we do does affect each other, but there's another side to it where what I do, my choice, affects my relationship with God. And especially that choice to repent. Verse 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. Again, so when we stand before God, if we have repented, we will be rewarded. And if we have not repented, we remain condemned. And it's all based on our personal choice to accept or reject God's free gift of salvation. We're not going to be justified or condemned on the basis of family or community. Verse 20, The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. And it's just another way of describing the same thing. God is going to great lengths to help the people understand this important truth by repetition and restating in different ways. So, bottom line, when it comes to our righteousness or lack of it, it's all based on us. It's all on us. It's our personal responsibility to choose. And now we move to verses 21 to 23. God's desire for the wicked to repent and live. So verses 21 to 23. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he has done. 
he shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? So God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. We'll cover that more in a sec. Verse 21, But if a wicked man repents, turns from all his sins which he has committed, keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right. So this is what true repentance looks like. This is the result of a changed heart. A changed heart leads to a changed life. And we went through this last week as we studied James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, living faith, dead faith, and Matthew 7, 21 to 27, talking about not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. Only those who do the will of my Father. Remember that? Okay? So, a changed heart leads to a changed life. Verse 21 to 23, it keeps on repeating this phrase, live, or he shall surely live, he shall live. Three times God repeats this. If the wicked choose to repent, they will live forever. And a quote from Block: One can sense Ezekiel's excitement as he announces the verdict for those who meet these conditions. He shall surely live. He shall not die. The past rebellious acts will be discounted and his present righteousness will be all that matters. So it's pretty exciting, eh, when you consider our salvation. None of those things which are held against us will be remembered anymore. Now, an example that shows that this is not all about works, because you can get that impression from reading this chapter until you get to the last part of it where it says, get yourself a new heart. A good example that shows it's not all about works is the repentant thief on the cross. In his heart, he turned from his sin, and as a result, he was welcomed into paradise by Jesus. Now, if this man had an opportunity to live, if he could somehow come down from the cross and continue to live, we would have seen a changed life, the fruits of righteousness. Instead of stealing, he would have started working and giving to others, Ephesians 4.28. But even on the cross, we can see a major change in how he talked to and about Jesus. So let's read the couple of scriptures that describe him before his conversion and after. So Mark 15, 31-32, this is before the thief's conversion, thief on the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And notice what it says next. Even those who were crucified with him, reviled him. There was only two others. Both thieves were reviling him, mocking him. But we go to Luke's Gospel now, Luke 23, 39-43, and this is after his conversion. So sometime when he's hanging on the cross, he has a change of heart. He has a repentant heart. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So, try and picture this. you got all these... Priests, you know, the chief priests and the crowd, you know, spitting on Jesus and 
mocking him, telling him, if you're the king, come down from the cross. And then somewhere in the middle of all that, this guy has a change of heart. Imagine how bold you would need to be to rebuke your friend, your other thief, <laughs> and say, hang on a second, no, you're wrong. One minute you were just mocking him, the next minute you're saying, uh-uh. Don't you even fear God? You know, this man has done nothing wrong. And then turning to Jesus and saying, Lord, receive me, you know. And Jesus says, absolutely. He didn't say, no, you haven't done enough good works. He just said, yep, I can see your heart's right, yeah. And the repentant thief on the cross had the honor of being able to suffer for the sake of Christ as he shared the insults directed at Christ. Because, you know, as a Christian, we share his sufferings. We share in his sufferings. Jesus says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And that's exactly what happened to that thief. So the door of repentance and restoration is open to any man, even on the deathbed. But it's all about this change of heart towards God. That's what true repentance is. It starts with a change of heart towards God. The change on the outside must be the result of a new heart and God's Spirit living inside of us. And we're going to look at that more at the end. Verse 22, it's fantastic. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him. So full forgiveness, full restoration to relationship with God and all because of God's grace. A couple of quotes. Leave your own sins and you shall never suffer for others' sins. Wisby says, the lesson from these two examples is obvious and answered their questions. People determine their own character and destiny by the decisions that they make. Neither the exiles in Babylon nor the citizens in Jerusalem were the prisoners and victims of some cosmic determinism that forced them to act as they did. Now verse 23, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? What's the answer? No. God does not have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die. And this reveals the tender father heart of God towards sinful man. God made man to be in relationship with himself. And it's God's greatest desire that sinful man is reconciled back to himself through repentance and faith. So God wants every man to, by faith, turn from his ways and live. And what's our main purpose as a Christian? We are ambassadors for Christ. And we are purposed, we are given the job of telling people about this reconciling of man to God through Jesus Christ. So let's read Second Corinthians five seventeen to 21 God has no pleasure that the wicked should die, and neither should we. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. See this change of heart again? Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, 
that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, before we look at that diagram, think about God's heart is that your heart. God's heart is for people to be reconciled to him. Is that your heart? Are you fulfilling the Great Commission? Are you going out and working with God to reconcile people to him? That's your purpose in life. To please God, living by faith, and tell other people about him, about what Jesus has done, so that man and God can be reconciled. Now, just want to quickly look at Verse 21, and this is a screenshot from the American Gospel Christ Crucified documentary. So basically, he, God, made him who knew no sin, which is Jesus Christ, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus took on our sin and we take on his righteousness. Can you say that? Jesus took on our sin, and we took on his righteousness. So in Ezekiel 18, it's talking about this as a fact, but it's not really telling us how it happens, so we're just going into a bit more New Testament detail. It happens like this. Jesus, who was perfect, took on our sin. He who knew no sin, he made, God the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So we are legally declared righteous and are treated as righteous. So when we pray, we come to the throne room of God, we come boldly and find grace to help in time of need. So God's desire for people to be saved, he didn't just say it, he backed it up with action. He suffered the whole world's eternal punishment, dying in the place of every person. And you can see 1 John 2.2 2 and John 3.16. And Psalm 103 beautifully summarizes who God is and his attitude towards the people he created. So I'm just going to read a few verses from Psalm 103, verses 2 to 5 and 8 to 14. So as we read these, just keep in mind that this is God's heart towards the people he created. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. So, that's our God. Now, the question might come, if that's our God and he's so loving, then why is there so much hurt and pain and sickness and death? in the world. So if God is such a good and loving Father, then why does God allow sin, pain and suffering? Well, God warned Adam of the consequences of sin, that it would be death. But what did Adam choose? Well, we're the same as Adam. Every time we sin, we think we know better than God. True? Adam thought he knew better than God. 
And every time we go against God's will, and every time we follow the desires of our sinful nature, we think we know better than God, what's good for us. So, it wasn't God's desire for sin to enter the world, but it's all about free choice. If there's going to be love, there must be the choice to love or hate, to obey or disobey, to accept or reject, to trust or not to trust. And the price of a love relationship is vulnerability. The willingness to love and trust something, know that you will probably get hurt because of it. And think about what God did for us. God made himself vulnerable to us when he created us. True? And in the church, this is a bit of a side thing here, but in the church we should be willing to do so with other believers. Make ourselves vulnerable to others. Allow ourselves to be hurt. Use your wisdom, of course. But close relationships don't come easy and forgiveness is required. All right? So in the church where we're brothers and sisters in Christ, we're not perfect and we will hurt each other. But God wants us to make ourselves open and vulnerable to each other, to confess our sins to one another, to be honest with each other. And when we get hurt, forgive. And the world sees that and goes, wow. Now, God hates to see people suffer, although because of sin, suffering and death are for now unavoidable. But God doesn't just stand back and laugh at us and give us a cosmic, I told you so. No. Instead, he feels our pain and suffers along with us. Just like a parent is grieved when one of their children is hurt or sick. Now, my wife, one time, she was, you know, when your lady's breastfeeding, their hands are kind of behind the baby and you can't really swat a mosquito. So the mosquito's flying around and she says to the mosquito, you can bite me, but don't you dare bite my baby. <laughs> That's her heart, yeah? Many a parent have said that they would gladly take the place of their sick child who may be dying of cancer. It's harder for the parent to watch their kid suffer than the kid to suffer through that thing, you know, if the parent loves their kid. So that's the heart of God toward the people that he made. He doesn't like to see us suffer. And Isaiah 63 verse 9 is a verse that sustained me in the things that I've been through, especially as a teenager. It says, In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. So when they were hurt, he was hurt. He felt their pain. And the angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity. He redeemed them and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. So again, God is so loving and fatherly that just like the parent in a real way suffers more than their sick child dying of cancer, so God suffers more than we do as a result of the suffering caused by sin. So as a child is abused, as a missionary is executed, as the Egyptians drown, the Israelite babies in the Nile River, God was deeply grieved. God is deeply grieved, more than we will understand or comprehend. So like any good parent, in response to our suffering, he comes alongside of us and bears us up and comforts us. 
even though many of us don't appreciate or recognize God's care and concern for us. Why? Because we're too busy complaining about our circumstances. God doesn't love me. Why would he allow me to go through this? Yeah? So the question is, how do we know that God really loves us? How do we know this is true, what I'm saying? Well, the ultimate demonstration of love was that God willingly chose to suffer the punishment we deserve for the sins that we have committed. God, by his own free will, because of his great love for us, suffered more than anyone. That's how vulnerable he made himself for his people. God, by his own free will, because of his great love for us, suffered more than anyone. When Jesus died on the cross, he suffered more than anyone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Yeah. First Timothy 2, 3-6 This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. So again, this whole thing that God does not have any pleasure that the wicked should die, what does it mean? What does it look like? Well, he feels our pain. He loves everybody. He doesn't want them to die and go to hell. All right, coming back to verse 23. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? A quote from Block. This is what Ezekiel's audience needs to deliver them from their bondage of depression and despair. A new vision of God. A God who is on the side of blessing and life, not on the side of the curse and death. Alexander says, Sinful mankind normally sees judgment as God's delight. Nothing could be further from God's desire, else he would not have sent his only son to be judged on the cross for the sin of the whole world. 1 John 2, 1 2. And Taylor says, It is the Lord's longing and will and purpose that men should be saved. Such a longing should be shared by every preacher who ventures to speak about the judgment of God. So it's all about balance, isn't it? Sin must be judged. But God doesn't take pleasure in that judgment. And David Guzik says, The fact that God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked does not mean that it will not happen. God's general desire for all humanity is that they would repent, turn to him and be saved, yet he will not spare the requirements of justice and holiness for those who refuse to turn to him. Now we come to an interesting verse in verse 24. God's promise of judgment to the righteous who turns away. Wow, okay, let's read this together. But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? The answer is no. All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed. Because of them he shall die. We're talking about eternal death. Okay. So, let's look at this from a practical point of view. Let's bring this to the New Testament and look at it from a practical point of view. Okay. So, but when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, all the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered. So, in a practical sense, right? It's true in a practical sense, even for someone who is saved. 
For example, a preacher can be faithful to live a good and honorable life for like 20 years, you know, but then he has an affair with a secretary and leaves his wife. And all the good he has done will be forgotten. What do you remember about, you know, Jimmy Swagger and other preachers, you know, who were unfaithful? Do you remember anything good about them? Ravi Zacharias? Sexual immorality, you know? They destroy their reputation. All the good that they have done is forgotten. The world remembers them as now an unfaithful man. All that's going to be remembered is his treachery and unfaithfulness towards his wife, his God, and his congregation. So, I'm going to say this. He is saved, but he will have lost his reward. And you can see Second John verse 8. He says, Be careful that you do not lose your reward. Yeah? You've got to finish well. It's not how you start that's important, it's how you finish. So, practically, the Christian who lives a godly life and then falters at the end, they'll lose their reward. They'll not lose their salvation, but according to Second John verse 8, they'll lose their reward. Now, what about this thing about, well, can the believer lose their salvation? Not just practically, not just, you know, affecting their life now. But what about eternally? Well, I don't believe you can lose your salvation because once God lives in you, that's a promise that God has made. He'll never leave you or forsake you. But there is a verse that reveals that there are false converts, people who are faking their salvation, whether conscious or unconsciously, it doesn't matter, who will eventually turn away from the truth and follow the desires of the sinful nature. So I'll read that from 1 John 2, 18-19 from the NLT. It says, Dear children, the last hour is here. You have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Now, the Antichrist is a counterfeit Messiah. It's not anti as in opposite, it's anti as in counterfeit. Yeah. When the Antichrist comes, he's going to pretend to be the Messiah. And already many such Antichrists, and you could say counterfeit Christians, have appeared. People who act like they're Christians, sing like they're Christians, pray like they're Christians, smell like they're Christians, eat like they're Christians, you know. If you can do that, okay. Have appeared. From this we know that the last hour has come. These people left our churches, but they never really belonged with us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. When they left, it proved that they did not belong with us. So, the false converts and I haven't put this in the notes, but when Paul was talking to the Ephesian elders, he said that some of you will rise up and turn away many to follow after you. So even some among the Ephesian elders were counterfeit Christians, counterfeit teachers. And Paul didn't know who they were. He just knew God had revealed to him that there were some among them who would leave the faith. And when they left, it proved that they did not belong with us. So, remember the parable of the wheat and the tares? God puts the good seed in, and what does the devil do? The enemy comes in and sows the tares. And the servants say, Master, didn't we only put the good seed in? And Should we pull up the tares? No, 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 leave it. At the end, when it's all born fruit, then you'll see the difference. 
So in the church today, there are a mixture of true believers and false believers. So that's the application from verse 24. Now, verses 25 through 29. God declares that his ways are fair and just. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair and your ways which are not fair? When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity and dies in it, it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies. Yeah, It's fair, individual responsibility. Again, when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he committed and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive because he considers and turns away from the transgressions which he committed. He shall surely live. He shall not die. It's fair, isn't it? You do the right thing, you get rewarded. If you do the wrong thing, you get punished. Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not fair, O house of Israel. Is it not my ways which are fair and your ways which are not fair? And the answer there, of course, yes. So God is always fair. He's a good judge. The innocent are set free and the guilty are judged and condemned. And God again repeats and emphasizes the individual responsibility of every person to choose their own eternal destiny, life or death. So the choice to repent and choose life is available to everybody. Now, we come to these wonderful verses in verses 30 to 32. It's God's invitation to turn and live. God's heart for all people. So let's read verses 30 to 32. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. That's the conclusion of the chapter. Therefore, turn and live. Repent. Now, all through this, it's cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed. If you're a believer, it means turning away from the old life. That's the evidence that you're a believer. It takes time. It's a process. We all works in process. We're not perfect the day we're saved, as some people believe. Never sin again. No. But our heart is set on becoming more like Christ. So verse 30, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways. So, remember, going back to the start of this message this morning, the Israelites understood salvation to be national or communal, like honor, shame society, collectivistic. But God reminds them once again that their relationship with him is not based on family or communal relationships. It all comes down to the individual's choice to turn from sin. Now, there's an application here. A lot of people are actually still in this boat. If you say that I'm a Christian, I'm going to heaven because I belong to a particular church or I'm a something or I'm a, you know, whatever church group or organization you want to lump yourself in with just because you might call yourself that doesn't mean you are that just because you label yourself a Christian doesn't make you a Christian any more than parking yourself in the garage makes you a car yeah so I'm amongst this group this group is doing well I'm feeling good so I must be saved no 
if you haven't repented personally, then you're not saved. Now, another thing to consider is that their external circumstances were not necessarily a reflection of their standing with God. And this is another false sense of security or doubt that people experience. So the Israelites thought that God had abandoned them because of their adverse circumstances. They also would have thought that good circumstances signified their relationship with God was all good. Is that always true? When we go through hard times, does it mean you're out of fellowship with God? No. Psalm 73 is a great psalm and it shows that there will be times when the wicked will prosper and the righteous will suffer. Ezekiel and Daniel were both righteous men, but they were both taken into captivity. Daniel was made a servant to the king for his whole life. Was that because he'd done something wrong? No, he was a righteous man. God used him mightily. You can't look at your circumstances and say, well, you know, I'm doing well with God, I'm not doing well with God. You have to look in your heart. You know, a lot of people think, well, I'm doing well, I've got a good job, you know, the house is almost paid off, I'm, you know, our family's going on holidays, we're doing great. Are you? How's your walk with God? Someone else might be saying, well, I'm really depressed, you know, I'm really struggling, you know, I've got family problems, I've got relationship issues. But you might be actually strong with God. God is actually using those circumstances to grow you. So verse 31 says, Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. So right at the end here, God shows us what true repentance is based on. It's not about works. It's not about a change in behavior. All right. And too often, you know, a guy can come into a church and who's not a Christian and he can pretend to be a Christian because he wants to marry this Christian girl. But what happens when so married? He goes back to behaving like a non-Christian, yeah? And the girl goes, well, what happened? Well, he wasn't a Christian to start with. It was an external motivation. It wasn't from his heart. It was something external to him that was causing his behavior to change. It's really easy to modify our behavior for a time to get something we want. Like getting off drugs so you can get a job, for example. You know, I know people who have stopped taking drugs. Why? Because I want to get a job. It's not because I want to please God. When they lose their job, what do they do? Back on the drugs. You know. Now, we're going to finish with an application called genuine repentance. So, in contrast to an externally motivated and temporary change in behavior, God works in our hearts. The Holy Spirit is convicting men of their sin, John 16, 8. And we saw God convicting David through Nathan over his sin with Bathsheba. We see God convicting Cain in Genesis 4, 1-7. God has been convicting men of sin all the way through the Bible. God also draws us to himself, John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Romans 3, 11 says that no one would seek God or no one seeks God. So without the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, no one would seek him and no one could be saved. However, God gives each of us the measure of faith, Romans 12, 3, and it becomes our responsibility to respond to the truth that God reveals to us. So the Holy Spirit reveals through the word of God that I am a sinner who deserves to be punished for my rebellion against God, and that is sin. That's what sin is, rebelling against God. The word also tells me that God is perfect and holy and so much punish sin 
and that's eternity in hell. But thankfully, God proved his love for me when he willingly took my place and absorbed the punishment for my sin that I deserved. Romans 5.8, John 3.16. Now, to receive forgiveness, I must submit to Christ's lordship over my entire life by being willing to forsake all. You can read that in Luke 14.25-33. And giving him permission to change me into his image. 2 Corinthians 3.18, being transformed from glory to glory by his spirit. Only then will God make his home in me. That's what it takes. It takes submission. Am I willing to put God first? Because if you're not, you're not saved. Remember the rich young ruler? Jesus said, it's easy. Just sell everything you have. Give the money to the poor and you have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. And he said, no. And he went away sad. His question was, what must I do to be saved? Jesus says, well, you need to forsake all. You need to repent. Basically, he wasn't willing. He couldn't be saved. So it's all about submission to Christ's lordship over my life. Giving him permission to change us. Being willing to forsake all. Make him the highest priority. Even greater than family and all those things. And only then will God make his home in me. So, John 14, 23-24. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. So, a couple of points about genuine repentance. Genuine repentance is based on my willing submission to God. Because I am in awe of all that he has done for me. And I am beginning to understand just how much God loves me. So my obedience is in response to God's demonstrated love for me. Another way of saying it, my submission or repentance is based on a radically new motivation for obeying God. It's a love for and appreciation of God. This is the mark of genuine repentance, when a person is drawn to God because they begin to understand how much he loves them and how he so desires for them to be in right relationship with him. And coming back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, For the love of Christ compels or motivates us, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So what's our motivation for living a godly life? It's what he did for us on the cross, yeah? This is what he's done for us on the cross. He died for us, and that should motivate us to live not for ourselves, but for him. Now, I'm going to finish with some verses, just quickly with some verses that show that the new life in Christ is not humanly possible, but is a direct result of God living in us and transforming us to become like himself. It's not just about changing your behavior. It's about submission to spirit living in you. Galatians 2.20 My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Philippians 2.13 For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Ephesians 3.20 Now all glory to God. 
not me, right? All glory to God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. And Romans 6, 6 to 7, how do we put away all that sin? We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. So now we're going to come to communion and take the Lord's Supper together. And the main point, as we've just been talking about, is our motivation for obeying God, for submitting to God, is love. Because he demonstrated his love for us by dying for us while we were still sinners, Romans 5.8. So when we come to communion, Jesus says, remember me, you know, remember the body broken, remember the blood that was shed for you. We do this to remember how much God loves us and that then motivates us to obey him. That's what it's all about. It's very simple. And that's why we are first saved is because a true convert will first understand, hey, God actually loves me. He's made a way for me to come back to him. I'm guilty. Yes, he's going to punish me if I don't repent. But if I do, and he's made the way, then I'll be part of his family. And he's done that because he loves me. He's paid the price, my price, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. 